0: Warning: Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Lock it Fire.
1: Open Sesame. Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transporter beam now. everyone to star trek from the holodeck all right so we have a big show lined up today we're gonna be sitting here for a couple hours part one which is part of our free broadcast will be a full hour for your enjoyment we will be tickling your ears or your ear lobes you ferengis out there and then we have a second part planned exclusively for our patreon subscribers and we'll give you details towards the end of the show where you can catch that broadcast, okay. Hello, David. How are you?
0: How's it going, everybody? Do you uh, feel good, Dave? I feel fantastic. I, in fact, I'm preparing some chamomile tea for myself. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> look at you. <laughs> look at you, feeling good
0: and all proud of yourself, Dave. That you were right again. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I'm just waiting to hear <laughs> hear it because there's something that I like, Mike. When I have to look at the, uh, when Star Trek fans of our show have to look at me and say. I am the Nostradamus of bad ideas. <laughs>
1: However, sometimes your bad ideas that are somehow in sync with some of these writers are executed far better uh, right. Jeez, than how so you better. originally, you know, thought of it. It is so,
0: such a good idea to have Terry Mathis basically be the conduit for my ideas. I mean, For the longtime listeners out there,
1: David, I think... I mean, I would normally be afraid that all your—I mean, you were right about Q. Yes, I, I'm, <laughs> and other things. We're not going to go through an entire list of what you were right about, but I'm starting to dislike doing shows with you, Dave.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just because uh, my my idea, my brain of bad ideas, seem to be actually in tune with today's showrunners. It's working.
1: At least in this particular episode, it's yes. working. So today. David, you and I are going to be discussing season three of Star Trek Picard episode three titled 17 seconds. This episode was directed by Jonathan Franks and it was written by Jane Maggs and Cindy Apple. So yes, David, you were somewhat correct in your assessment of Beverly Crusher. However, It was less about blaming Picard as you had insinuated during our last discussion and more about the danger he attracts. Yes.
0: That's when I, when I thought about that's a more genius way of putting it because it doesn't really change Beverly's the way we think Beverly's feelings towards Picard, because it's obviously that they still hold a candle for each other. It's just the situation that they were, that, that they're placed in is what, Breaks them up.
1: Well, as Crusher puts it, Jean-Luc Picard level threats. You know, someone or something is always out to to get him. And by default, the people around him are placed in danger. This scene between the two of them was entirely moving. Interestingly, the moment, though it clearly was a moment rife with divisive intent and set the stage for Picard's dismissal from the bridge via... Riker, it didn't turn the audience against Crusher because most people could understand her view as a mother. And that's one thing I get nervous about when you turn two legacy characters against each other in their opposing opinions, as we saw with Riker, as we saw with Dr. Crusher and Picard. Because most people, as I said, could understand from the Crusher side a mother's view, which doesn't prevent the audience from also empathizing with Picard at the same time. See, that's the key. To creating a divisive scene between two legacy characters or at least characters we care about make sure we can empathize with both views yeah. so that you don't mistakenly malign one of the characters and make them dislikable and still lines like you don't get to condemn people Before the fact has become a culturally relevant rationale in today's divisive social climate. So even with Picard's rebuttal to Crusher, you can see that the writers are actively trying to dissect common social uh, issues Issues, within today's contemporary society.
0: Well, not only that, it it added to the fact that basically when Picard looks at Beverly and tells her, I trusted you with that knowledge about my father and you use it against me.
1: That is so powerful
0: because there's a lot
1: of people and maybe I'm speaking at a very personal level right now, but there are people that you become intimate with and you share things because you feel that you can be vulnerable with this person. And then if that relationship, whether it be platonic or intimate in a sexual way, I guess you can call it, then sometimes when it falls apart, it's a shame when the people you trusted these secrets about yourself try to use that against
0: you. Use that against you, and it's like then it. it the one thing I really enjoyed about this episode, it really hammered the home, home the strength that Terry Metalis as a, as the showrunner and his writing staff have. Metalis, Metalis. <laughs> but the strength that they have is like they're they are able to do something that not a lot of writers out there. Who have tried to do similar stories like this can which is you don't make the characters dislikable you show everyone's point of view and they all understand each other and more often
1: than not what happens is you do get the audiences taking sides taking sides because the way the other character was presented is unbecoming and mm-hmm. we tend to find them annoying and dislikable and that's the one thing i was worried about with with the with the ending of the last episode and the reveal that jack crusher was in fact picard's son i was hoping they didn't turn this into either a another pointing at picard saying oh shame on you you're a bad person this is why you didn't raise your son or the opposite they would then bring dr crusher back so we can just simply not like her for what she did and
0: Instead, they, they they walk the line. They walk the line. Yep. And because of that, they're able to actually make us as the fans not not take sides. But we understand just discuss and understand, hey, Beverly's in the wrong. Yes. But Picard's also in the wrong, too, because, well, unfortunately, when you look at his situation and you and the power that Beverly put it in makes sense. The fact that basically the one thing that really stuck with me was when she makes, she tells, she, she talks about the last time they were intimate and they broke, they quote unquote broke up and Picard's like smiling. say, so yeah, that was the fifth time we've done that. Yeah. And it's like, you're taking, you're taking pride in basically put getting together, breaking up, getting together, breaking up. That's not healthy. <laughs>
1: That's yeah. Not healthy. But there was an understanding. I think that was the point. There was an understanding between the two. Exactly.
0: Of them. And then they, they, they still continued on the fact that basically they, understand each other it's not like Picard's a bad person it's just no. basically the situation that they yeah they're
1: in. yeah it makes sense so yes Jack Crusher was hidden away from Picard because of the target on his back and the line that Crusher says she was sure she could possibly protect her son but not sure she could protect Picard's yes and that's entirely relevant to what seems to be the underlying framework of the season that's why i felt like that line was so important that people followed what was being said because this season so far is not being written just to create melodrama or to create plot progression. Everything actually matters. So what's happening with Beverly Crusher and Picard, certainly it's about fleshing out character, showing us what's happened over the past 20 years between the two of them, but also it's a framework for what the theme of this season is going to be about. Mm -hmm. And it's the fact that Picard attracts prolific threats. Yeah. There are pieces of literature and quotes from historical figures that substantiate such an idea. What's that saying, uh, David, about superheroes and with the rise of superheroes?
0: Oh, the, the, uh, whenever a superhero rises, a villain must follow. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. And there are
1: literary aspects doused within this conversation. Oh, yeah. When she says, Picard has epic size and I'm paraphrasing here, epic size threats. I mean, that's kind of the general thought in literature. There is an Arabian proverb that says judge a man by the reputation of his enemies. Yes. Paul Newman said a man with no enemies is a man with no character. You have enemies. It is the story of every man who has done a great deed or created a new idea. It is the cloud which thunders around everything that shines Fame must have enemies as light must have gnats. That's from Victor Hugo. I mean, the goes on and on. I ask you to judge me by the enemies I have made. Franklin Roosevelt. There are literally hundreds of quotes that substantiate someone's greatness
0: based on the enemies they collect. They collect. And think about like the later on when you have another part that I really liked, which was the uncle and nephew talk, which was Riker and Jack. And Jack makes the comment that basically she talked about your guys's adventures and she would smile, but then the smile would turn to sadness because that puts it in perspective about how like they would go on all these great adventures, but every single threat would be cumulative. It'd be like more dangerous and more dangerous. And that's the overall realization that Beverly has is like, this is his life. This is who he is. This is why he is the great Jean-Luc Picard, because she wasn't diminishing. She his, wasn't diminishing his legacy, his legacy or who he is.
1: She was simply stating the obvious. You yes. have a target on your back based on who you are as an individual. But I don't think that's an indictment of Picard either. Unlike what we got in the first season, where it felt more like pointing at Picard, saying you're the reason why these things happen there were odd notions of privilege that were added via Shaban's uh, social commentary. <laughs> that just felt really out of place because there is no privilege necessarily in the way they were trying to present it in the world mm-hmm. of star Trek. So I do like this idea better. I like the idea that people of excellence attracts heightened threats. Yeah. And this is the general framework. This is the theme I was talking about. This does also work conducively with the other seasons as well, which marks a point of connection that appears purposely done, um, if you know what to look for, and if you're trying to interpret the subtext, we've commented on the seemingly disconnected seasons, especially with the start of this season and the obvious change in direction, uh, tone, overall mood, and how only time will tell if the incongruent tone and style between Picard's seasons will work in its favor. Or mark the show as an indecisive mess. Well, this seems to be the aspect that not only brings continuity to the prior seasons of Picard, but Picard's story overall. If you look at Nemesis, we see a variant of this. To be associated genetically, as was the case with Shinzon, evokes a type of genetic determinism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And keeping all of this in mind, it, is this the reason why the writers position Riker in opposition to Picard in this episode to strengthen this idea that he inadvertently and by association brings about dangers? Yes. Is this why Shaw was a D bag and said no to No. Them? Was he, <laughs> because, were they, were they setting the table for this theme?
0: Yeah, exactly. And when you take a look at, especially in the first episode where we have that Shaw speech where he says, well, this is going to be a kind of boring, you know, you guys don't, Nothing's going to be exploding, and we all toss that aside as kind of like, "Oh, that's just you know a a narrative use of a joke or something." But
1: it wasn't; it had
0: intent. But it has now more intent than ever now, thanks to this episode,
1: because that means other people are also aware of Bacard's. Um, not, not certainly, there are people out there without logic and reason who probably look at Bacard like Shaw and say, "You're a danger. Yes, you're a, a, a loose cannon that." You know throws yourself into the hornet's nest and you don't actually consider the people around you but it's actually uh, quite the opposite it is the fact that he doesn't even necessarily control that Control that these things are happening to him it's the fact that by his own character he involves himself in situations where he sees that he is needed. He is doing charitable work. He's not kicking over Hornet's Nest to just create trouble and to add to his legacy as the best captain and admiral in all of Starfleet. It's about what he feels is the right thing. And yeah. in doing the right thing, he sometimes upsets the, I don't want to call it the natural order, but he, uh, because he tries to rectify Situation, situation, and that of course is going to put a target on his back.
0: And think about like the the genius of actually tying that in with the notion of his his main disappointment with Beverly isn't the whole thing about keeping her the secret of her of his son away from him. It's the fact that she took away his ability to choose to make that decision on his own. And I was like, going that that parallels so well with how everyone's constantly saying, this is your life, Picard. You, you made this choice and this is the consequences of it. You are a constant target of everybody. And then Picard in the in his discussion with Beverly or his uh, dialogue with Beverly basically says the thing that bothers him the most is the fact that he never was able to be given that chance to choose. Does he want the life with his son? Does he want the life with as a family, or does he want to continue on being the great Jean Luc Picard? And
1: hmm. I I, yeah, I don't know if he has an ego though necessarily, Picard. Do you think he? Has, I don't.
0: I don't think he. Has I don't think a, he
1: has hubris per se. I not, think not he, hubris in the bad
0: sense, but it's human. It's human nature. I think he's obsessive. Yeah, he's. I, I think he's that's, obsessive as any human would be if you think about it. Yeah, because if our choice of being it goes back to like the long all those discussions of me of you had about like how Star Trek is predestined. Everyone has a predestiny and that bothers people. (laughs) And if you think about it, essentially Picard's doubling down on that notion is like he always wants to be the one to at least have a decision to make that decision of free will. But again, if if life is predestined, he doesn't really have that that choice.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know if. Yeah, I. I listen. I. Who knows at this point? It's too early to, to say It's way too early, to but tell, But
0: you could see the breadcrumbs there for that for that type of dialogue that they're doing. Yeah, I don't know if free
1: will factors into this. I, has Star Trek delved into free will very often? Um, Seems to be a little el- Because when you bring in uh, aspects of free will, it also brings into questions of the divine. And Star Trek's never been,
0: never actually brought into divine, but it's always brought in this notion that destiny happens. These characters have to do determinism, determinism, secular determinism,
1: detached from any type of divinity. Then yes, I would agree with that.
0: Because like, if you think about it, how many times have we seen in Star Trek? Oh spock always has to end up with kirk somehow in some way oh yeah especially in slash fiction <laughs> it's oh. Like, oh yeah <laughs> but the same thing with with if you think about the tng crew they are predestined to be together that is the that is the driving element of a lot of fan vitriol too is like well where's everybody else where's this where's this character now oh, calm down Because everyone thinks everything is predestined.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So you talk about fans being up in arms about certain things. I want to bring this back to what we were talking about with Riker aspect for a moment here. Yeah. I had initially set the conversation up to talk about turning Riker and Picard on each other. And at the beginning, when I first saw it, it kind of hurt me. I was like, why, why are you guys doing this? (laughs) <laughs> but, but again, looking at it objectively, taking yourself, removing yourself from the moments and beats of this episode in itself and look at the bigger picture and what they're doing and what was being said between Crusher and Picard about the associations and these associations with Picard, you have dangers, you can understand the Riker and Picard. I don't want to say they disrespect each other no, because no. certainly... Th- This is why the writers had that little flashback sequence. They're trying to make sure audiences understand that Riker and Picard clearly have affections for each other. And if they disagree, that's simply all it is is a disagreement. There's a brotherhood there that much was highlighted. But while the writers drew attention to such facts, it seemed they were also intent on making Riker his own man as well. Someone that doesn't always agree with Picard's methods. And I do like this because Riker's development can't be stifled because we want them to get along. Yeah. That's something that happened in TNG. And they found a creative way to stifle his development in a very meta type of way that used his career and his inability to leave Picard. And that's why he didn't become a captain for so long. They found narrative justifications as to why Riker should have been a captain. But but, he chose not to. But he chose not to. Well, now we're, we're past that. This is 30 plus years later. He can't be simply a yes man to Picard. So the fact that it's clear he loves the man. Well, also, it's clear he has a very different style of of commanding. And in this situation, he has a very clear opinion on what should be done and what shouldn't. And while that is being fleshed out to create Riker and put him in a category of, of being his own man, being his own person. At the same time, they strengthened the idea of the dangers associated with Picard, as we saw at the end, when he made a decision that he thought was right. That, listen, it, it could have been a great decision. How can he foresee that the portal weapon was going to turn no. their <laughs> weapons on themselves? But again, putting that target, literally a giant portal is a target on the back of that starship, the USS Titan, because of Picard. I think it strengthened the overall fame of the episode.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because like, I really liked the fact that just like you, just like what you said is like, I was also concerned like, oh, they're going to turn Picard and Riker against each other. And in this episode, did they? No. No did they create a, a debate between the two absolutely because just like you said both this episode showed that both of them are two different types of captains and right uh riker has a has a one up on on picard at this point because he understands what picard has gone through you know he's just seeing that he almost lost his son so he just like what he said, he, if he found out that day, he would burn the universe to save his son. So Riker understands Picard's point. Right. But he also, he also sees that basically... He has the life of all these people in his hands. Yes. Yep. He has all the life of the people, the, the, uh, the, the crew of the Titan. He has that responsibility still. And he's, he can't just throw that away just for one person, no matter how much he cares about that person. Yeah. We don't
1: want Picard to be infallible. None of our captains have been infallible. In fact, if they're infallible, they wouldn't be interesting. Oh, yeah. Kirk was fallible. I mean, he suffered with prejudice, as we have discussed he was time a and racist. time again. He hated Klingons. So I'm not against a type of indictment. And and the reason why I bring that up, David is because that's been kind of our talking point since season one, when it comes to Picard now, where I might not want in a total indictment, when it comes to Picard, there is plenty of room for a dissection of Picard's fallibility. This is an interesting aspect when it comes to all forms of entertainment and a point of contrast could be uh, between Kirk and Pac or, Kirk and Pac. Kirk and Who Pac. Who is that? <laughs> Who is Pac? <laughs> um, a point of contrast between Kirk and Picard. One might think Picard is a bit of a rogue like Kirk and possibly so. However, Picard early on was rather by the book. He was strong willed but adhered to his duty. It wasn't until the effects of trauma twisted his sense of duty uh, into something more obsessive, something that First Contact brought attention to with Captain, <laughs> Ahab, captain Ahab. With the whole Captain Ahab all allegory, One of my favorite scenes. Which that whole thing aligned Picard with this monomaniacal captain from um, Moby Dick. Moby Dick. That character isn't a pleasant character in Moby Dick. He's an obsessed, he's an obsessed person, very flawed. And the fact that they drew those parallels in first contact, and then they're bringing those obsessive notes to the forefront in this episode. Again, you can see that they're trying to draw those connections, those much needed connections. They're aligning first contact TNG, star Trek, Picard one, star Trek, Picard two, with season three season of three. Bacard, They're taking all of those aspects where you see Bacard as this magnetic character that draws larger than life villains combined with his obsessive fallibility. It works. And that's why I say this season so far, we're only three episodes in. It does feel like they're actually working to align and bring all iterations of Picard together
0: under one, one lens one lens yeah and like it's going to be interesting does any of that make sense or am I rambling (laughs) no it makes complete sense because when you take a step back out of all the captains I know that it's always been the argument Captain Kirk or uh, Captain Picard Mm -hmm. but when you look at all the captains Picard is always that one that it's almost like he's several personalities throughout the entire series he's He's very dutiful at one point. He's very passionate. The in, run of Star Trek or are you
1: talking about the series as in Picard?
0: Uh, the the run of Star Trek. Okay. Even back to TNG. Yeah. He starts off as a dutiful captain, like what you said. And then suddenly he is more standoffish towards his crew. But then, you know, we get to see a lighter side of Jean-Luc. Then we get to see the traumatized version of Jean-Luc. post lacutus Post-Locutis. That's, that's when he has a change. I'll even take it even further. Like- Even like when he's dealing with Worf's story where he has to be that out that outside diplomat, but he has to actually literally become almost like a family member to Worf to kind of like charter that that storyline with Worf and the Klingon race. He asserts himself into different cultures where he
1: sees that he can be needed. Yeah, He has never refrained from that.
0: And he transforms himself every single time to the point where it's kind of like, who is the real Mm Jean-Luc? Who is the real Jean-Luc? And honestly, in at season two, I started seeing that that is what his legacy is turning into is like, it's all about how Jean-Luc has always been that front and center. I am there to, to guide Starfleet forward because I am the shining beacon of all the captains. Right. I mean, even like when you think about it back to season two with Q, when Q flips it on its head and says, Oh, if you were, if you were a conqueror, you would have conquered the galaxy. You killed all these people and made them your trophies in your own study. Why? Because down deep inside, that is Picard's. I think it's just a darker version. It's a darker of, version. of It's
1: it. a darker version. I'm glad you bring that up because that was one thing that I was thinking about the how they presented him in this alternate reality. He can only get to that point by having the same attributes he has in the prime universe. Exactly. Strong willed. Strong attention to duty. And commitment.
0: And like religious commits and obsessiveness.
1: And that's how you get there. And that's why when you take a larger look now, what Metallus is doing with Picard actually fixes some of the disjointed elements between season one and now in Star Trek Picard, while also realigning him with older iterations of Picard and how he was presented in TNG, as well as the movie.
0: That's why I thought on a side note, that's why I thought it was interesting. They bring up the debate. If Picard had the choice, would he have changed his life? If he knew he had a son, would he have changed himself? Would he have actually said, I'm going to quit Starfleet. I'm going to be a father. I'm going to be a family man. And I hate to say it. I don't think the way the character is like lensed right now, uh, the character Jean-Luc can say he was going to change. but I don't think he would ever. Well, Q gave him
1: the opportunity multiple times to be different To be different and g the episode where it was revealed that he had an artificial heart, yeah, when he got stabbed by the Nosigans Q gave him the opportunity to choose a different path, a path that was less a version of an assertive Picard and more someone who just goes with the flow, someone not as committed to duty, someone who's not as strong willed. And when he saw what that future was, it wasn't something that was becoming to Picard. He was very unhappy with who he had become by taking the safer route. So when you look again at this episode, just this episode alone, compiled with what we've seen before, you can see that Metallus actually does, David, have a very deep understanding of who Picard is. Okay, so let's talk about
0: story B. Worf and Raffy. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cause uh, oh God, dude. I was so giddy. You know, I was giddy with Q showing up, but I think the ultimate fan service moment for me was Worf going, I am Worf, son of son of Moog. Yeah. House of uh House of Morg, son of Mikhail, House of Roshkov, I think it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. That's that's his that's his Earth family, bane of Duras, which is hilarious, and slayer of Gauron.
1: Yeah, all of his ridiculous <laughs> titles that were also equally awesome. And then he basically goes,
0: "I have chamomile tea." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, going, "Yes, yes, you do." That was such a great
1: way to. I mean, his official introduction to Picard was last episode of the tail end, but that the way that he was better. The way he introduced himself to Rafi was amazing. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Now I will say, Dave, I don't get overly giddy. You know, I try to maintain, I am obviously a huge Star Trek fan, but I try to be objective and not get overly excited because I want to, I want to see what they're doing before I get overly emotionally invested. But ah, man, the, the, the way they set up this story, Dave, I have been nervous about them delving into these waters for years. When there's been rumors, in fact, earlier this year, when there was, um, I think there was a report from Variety or Deadline uh, that said uh, it was an interview with Metallus and he was saying that he's going to view this as also a sequel to Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Yes. Pretty much the entire TNG era. And I got scared. Like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. You, how dare you, sir? Be, be frugal with what you do. But, but you have plenty my- of stuff that were already there. Don't you dare dip your toes into the sacred waters of Deep Space Nine, please, unless you know Deep Space Nine very well, because you could undermine everything. Oh, yeah. But the way they fleshed it out post Deep Space Nine, I thought actually worked. And when I saw that this dude was a changeling, I fucking lost my shit. I was like, <laughs> oh, fuck, we're doing this. We're doing this.
0: <laughs> and I know. I was like, as soon as that happened, I'm like going, Mike has to like this episode because this is the most references we've had to DS9. I had to
1: pause the TV and give myself lobe.
0: I was like... (laughs) (laughs) Give yourself lobe.
1: (laughs) I was way too excited.
0: Especially when he... When just seamlessly, they didn't have to make a grandiose thing about explaining DS9 or explaining the storyline of the changelings. It just took Warfick telling them they were the ones who actually... Led the Dominion War. There was a faction, a religious faction within the Great Lane. Not religious. He made them sound like they were, zo- they were like really
1: fanatical. Okay. So I have it here. So it turns out that the portal weapon was simply a distraction, right? Yes. So the baddies could steal something else. And these- I have
0: a theory, Mike. I, I have know have you do.
1: We'll get to <laughs> <I have laughs> that. Christ. And these baddies, which we don't know the entire scope as of yet, but it does include a faction of changelings. And I believe he said it was a schism schism. within the great link. Yes. So what does this all mean through Worf? It was implied that Odo, which he referred to as an honorable member of the great link informed Starfleet of a schism or faction that broke from the great link after the dominion war, because they refused to accept that they lost but the Federation, not wanting to exacerbate anxieties that could lead to another full blown war, yes, chose not to acknowledge their existence.
0: And think about it, dude. After DS Nine, that was a major plot point for the Dominion War was the fact that no one could trust anybody because everyone thought everyone was a changeling. So if it, it made sense when when War says the Federation has to keep this hush. Because they don't want a continuation of the Dominion War happening because all all that paranoia was what destroyed the Federation toward the end of the Dominion War. It diminished them, yeah. It diminished them because like, and could you imagine if they find out, oh, yeah, the Changelings who ran the Dominion War are still around. Well, and this is very much in
1: step with what Picard is doing. It's not just bringing in the the Great Link and the changelings because wouldn't it be cool, guys, if we did this? You know, Worf was a part of that storyline. He was a part of Deep Space Nine. What if we just did it? It actually fits, Dave, what they have been doing with Star Trek since 2017. Let's go further back. And we've said this before. Let's go back to Nemesis and Insurrection. The fallout of the Dominion War shaped much of the newer. Let's go back. Let's look at it less from an in-story world aspect and look at it more as a narrative from a writing standpoint. So these are big Trek universe defining elements. The Dominion War shaped much of the newer ideological nuances embedded in Trek post Deep Space Nine. And that includes the TNG movies. Mm -hmm. So because what we're dealing with, essentially, with all of Picard, starting with season one, is... Still, the aftermath and the, the, the diminishing control of the Federation or the diminishing effectiveness is a better way of saying control sounds a little fascist and Federation isn't that. It's diminishing their overall ability to help the, the galaxy because they just took so many losses. So when you look at what they started with in, in, in Picard season one, it would make sense. This dis- disillusionment with institutions, mm-hmm. it works with what we know of and what happened with D space nine. Oh yeah. leading so great-
0: paranoia. Th- also, if you think about it, they blame the Romulans for, for the attack in, in season three. How does that, uh, that is so like the changeling way of thinking is to let's, let's find a way to blame this race over here they're already already not liked since season one. Let's increase the dislike and disgrace, increase the paranoia of, of the Federation by doing another attack on them and blaming it on the people that they don't like. It's, it's one of those things when I took a step back after watching this for the first time and then watching it the second time, the changelings and the dominion uh, from the dominion war, they are probably one of the nastiest villains the Federations has ever faced because there's no way you can stop them. They it don't, really isn't.
1: They don't have things except for Odo. They don't really have. Morals. You I, say like because of their lack of anthropomorphic attributes, they have been presented as an uncanny representation of humanity. Because of that very aspect of creating this uncanny, they can't even create a true human form at first. They obviously look different. It's almost looking at humanity through a very dark reflection. This is what we would be without the morals that we create to create a society where we thrive. Yes. That's why the Dominion War was so scary. Because... The changelings didn't have any of that. Mm -hmm. They were void of empathy, sympathy, human compassion. They were the exact opposite of everything. The Federation stood for.
0: Remember they saw emotion as strange, especially like, I will never forget. So the best, my favorite, one of my favorite moments in DS nine was when Odo gets tested by them and they're just toying with him. They're basically challenging. They're trying to see why is this guy, so attached to these humans. And literally playing with his emotions,
1: says Kira's ass. Well, <laughs> well that, t- that was their conclusion.: That was their conclusion.: The <laughs> reason why he didn't want to come back to the Great Link was because he was in love. With- he was in love with Kira. But that's the thing that they didn't understand. He was an anomaly. The fact that he, a change fell in love with a Bajoran, someone who can have human qualities, you know, emotions, feelings love that is what showed him the way that's what made him different his ability to fall in love is what changed his entire worldview and that's something that the overall changelings just didn't have and that's why they didn't understand him and why ultimately they viewed him as a threat as a threat and also it does make sense retrospectively when you look back when Odo, I believe at the end of Deep Space Nine, that's where he went. He went back to the Great Link to help them.
0: Yeah, because he, by changing, by, by linking, if I'm not correct. if They, they if, had been almost with,
1: annihilated. Yeah. Section 31 did that whole virus.
0: The virus. But like in Odo going back, he was able to share what he learned of all these emotions. Right. And share it into the Great
1: Link, and it would make sense that there would be some people that would push back on that.
0: Yeah, that's why the, that, that scene itself, when he says goodbye to Kira, that's why I was sad because he essentially, basically, has to go back to the Great Link. He has to leave Kira.
1: Yeah, and she and she missed his Great Link. I'm
0: sure. I mean. <laughs> well, dude, he's a changeling. He could change. Think about dude, it. He like, could shape shift anything. Exactly. You want a hammer today? All right, come here. <laughs> you want Klingon spikes? I could give you Klingon oh. spikes. <laughs>
1: So inappropriate. We lose all credibility <laughs> as soon as that happens What if I was a change. Like I'd do that. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about how the writers are presenting Worf so far. Worf doesn't seem to be a full on pacifist as the general <laughs> consensus was leading into the show. If anything, he seems to be less driven by Klingon aggression and more, I would say logic and a type of rationale that comes with age. Yeah, that I would probably call wisdom. This is exactly how I envisioned Worf, David. This is why I loved how they presented him in this episode. Knowing his story, this makes sense as one of the fully as one of the few fully realized Trek characters that was in multiple movies, countless episodes of Trek television, crossing over into numerous TV shows and now into Picard as well. I was nervous how they would handle him so far, but everything seems to be aligned with what we would know of him. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this during our last discussion, but a man that has witnessed the amount of bloodshed and war that he has, it would make sense that it would cause him to reflect.
0: Oh, exactly.
1: And either a, you would have, unfortunately a very flawed person would fall further into the violence But someone who's wise and possibly logical would look back and use it as a way to possibly mend any internal trauma brought on by war. Maybe that maybe, listen, we can be Klingon, we can be honorable, but there's another way besides simply aggressive action. Which they didn't they already say that by the nature of the Klingon Empire, because of the way they act and the way they have infighting that that way is unsustainable. It's unsustainable. Say it say that destroys that in t- them in the end. Yes. Isn't that what they said in either D. Space Nine or TNG? And that's why they needed to change.
0: Well, that was the whole point, the story. Well, that was one of the points of the story between him and Gowron in the end. Because okay. remember, Gowron, yeah. Gowron was the one who refused to change. He didn't want to change. But because of what Worf was bringing to the Klingon Government in the race at the time that was like highly against what Gowron was doing, mm-hmm. and that's what caused that that schism between the two. Which, honestly, on a side note, that that is one of my negatives of DS Nine that I hated the fact that they turned Gowron kind of into a villain. It was too fast. It was way too fast, and I was like, oh man! But Gowron, Gowron going full blown villain just didn't seem right to me. That was my singular
1: complaint with D Space Nine. The, the it's only, just the, the execution, it felt very rushed
0: with how they resolved yeah. the, the issue between Gowron and Worf. The only, the, only, the only saving part was the fact that at least we can say when we look at that ending with Worf killing Galron, that had meaning at
1: least. It, it also signaled a change. It in signaled a change yes. for the
0: Klingon race. Which then
1: reflects a bit of foreshadowing. That we can see and follow now to the very instance here where Worf has been reintroduced into Star Trek via Star Trek Picard. Now, I will say when you analyze some of his words, Dave, and this is where we're going to get into some philosophical aspects here, when you analyze some of his words... His personal ideology seems to be more associated with moral nihilism than, say, passivity.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, remember, we were talking about how a lot of fans were saying, oh, my God, they turned Worf into a pacifist. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of like saying, well, wait up. Let's see what we we're going to see here. Because I think people who don't understand what true pacifism is and what, what it is immediately just thinks They have like a stereotype,
1: a beta male who tucks his dick and runs away
0: from any type of uh, aggression or conflict. They think that that's, Oh, that's all of pacifism. Mm -hmm. No, not at all. Yeah. And, but when you look at like the philosophies of like nihilism and the way that Worf was acting in this episode, he is more like that. I have to say
1: something really fast and I may cut what I just said. When I say tuck your dick, that was not a, (laughs) that was not an insult towards trans people, please. That (laughs) was just, I know, I thought about how that (laughs) sounded. That was just my way of making fun of, of the view of certain weak men.
0: It takes strength to tuck it. Believe me. (laughs) I forgot about those stories. David. I don't want to hear those stories about
1: you on the, on the star Trek
0: show, please. That's for other shows. That's for other shows. But Hey, you know, I'm just saying, don't worry. You're fine. (laughs) So
1: all overall in a philosophical context, both passivity and nihilism can function as a singular whole, depending on how you view them. Uh, There were a few things he said, Worf, that would substantiate his affinity towards moral nihilism when he says there is no good, there is no evil, we are the same. Yes. Now, this attempt of or assertion to dismiss value judgments aligns with nihilist thought. Yes. Now, I'm not going to dissect the dozens of variations of moral nihilism, but for the purposes of brevity... Basically, it's the idea that phenomena such as good and bad does not actually exist in the world. In fact, according to nihilists, there is a rigid fact-value distinction. Basically, I guess you could say there is a sharp difference between facts and values, meaning facts exist, values don't. Values are created and shaped by social structures we find ourselves a part of, or institutional hegemony. So values don't exist. They don't. There isn't, they're not good, bad, quote unquote limitations that we place. We create them to make sense of the world that we are in. Exactly. And that is not facts. So regardless, it works for Worf and, and I I love the conversations it's, it's generated.
0: Well, especially, especially when you take into context of where he's coming from, Dominion war, dude, changed characters completely i thought when you look at the overall story of the dominion war that is probably one of the grittiest darkest most real storytellings of a of, of what happens during war besides a battle when you're involved in
1: as much war as say Worf was involved in yeah and you look in, and you take a look at deep space nine and you look at all those stories it is kind of hard for someone to reconcile <laughs> war and that magnitude yeah, by looking at it simply in the binary of good and bad war is complicated. So wouldn't it make sense that you would remove the context of good and bad in order to understand what war really means. And yeah. many times that means a look or a step into moral nihilism.
0: And when you take into the fact, not only that, but during that time, Worf is also dealing with, I'll never forget the one storyline where they de- dealt with the, the false messiah for the Klingon religion. No, that was a good episode. And Worf has to come with terms with the fact that the, the messiah he thought was the savior of the Klingon race wasn't a messiah at all. It, it it never really existed. Mm -hmm. It was just a name that came up that they created so that they can actually control the Klingon people. And when he comes to the realization of that, essentially he's finding out, your religion's fake you. There's no such your religion and everything. The things that you believe in, they don't exist. Yeah. (laughs) And then we get, we see him here in Picard. Of course. Yeah. Him saying that, but there is no such thing as good or evil. Immediately. I'm like going, yeah, of all the things that Worf has seen, he probably would be that type of person that would say there is no such thing as good or evil or religion or God. Because I've seen things that basically just does not make sense.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So, (laughs) yes, I don't... Yeah, that's a... You just opened up a giant can there. (laughs) That's going to be another hour and a half or three (laughs) of discussions on the way superstitions, divinity, the supernatural actually are presented in Star Trek. Because there are episodes in Star Trek, David, Star Trek Voyager, that actually clearly clearly asserts that some type of divinity connected to Kleon culture does exist. They don't delve into exactly what it is and how it works, but B- Bailana died. Yeah. And I believe she went to um, Stovacor. Was it Stovacor? I think is, is it's that Stovacor. The, I, no, I, the purgatory version of.
0: Oh yeah. The,
1: Stovacor is like their heaven, right? That, yeah. That's Stovacor like on, is heaven. It I don't remember all you know the Klingon faith so please forgive me people <laughs> out there but also while you look that up David I want to I want to iterate that I, I don't want people thinking oh, oh nihilism what are you talking about nihilism Star Trek never been about nihilism well a lot of times people view nihilism as simply contemporary nihilism where a lot of people view it as I don't believe in anything fuck life Fuck you. Nothing matters. That's not what moral nihilism is.
0: Yeah. Um, let's see. Nether space. Apparently they call that the Phantom Purgatory. Okay.
1: All right. So, David, overall, this episode was powerful in its framing of the season and surprisingly worked to strengthen some of the intangible perceptions of Star Trek Picard as a whole, adding Greater validity to Shaban's work on season one, finessing underpinned themes and revelations pertaining to Q as a godlike entity attached to Picard. Yes. And his deeper implications about Picard as a drawing force or a cosmological phenomenon constructed of a type of uh, uh, mesmerism, which is basically animal magnetism. Uh, also, the mapping out of the larger mythologies of Trek through intertextual arrangements that rely on multiple iterations of Trek. Thank you for doing that and showing Shaban that it can be done. It can be done. It's very exciting. It's philosophical, and it's Star Trek. I'm giving this episode a ninety-seven <laughs> percent.
0: I'm I'm with you there. I'm I'm going to give this. I have this written down as a ninety-five because I had to look back and see because the last episode, I I believe I gave a ninety-two. And this episode just knocked it out of the park. And I thought it was better than the last episode. So I'd have to give the, this one at least a 95. I'm trying to be, I'm trying not to get my hopes up still. I know. I know. Because I'm like, like, we're three episodes in Mike. We're
1: well, three episodes. I, in. I know that. And I thought the same thing because we were pretty excited for the opening seven episodes of the first season. We were really excited for the opening. Well, we were actually, no, we were pretty we pretty hyped up. I think our general excitement was pretty much swiveling across the board pretty oh, yeah. much. But we did, I think we did rate the episodes higher at the beginning because we're like, oh, this is good. We, so taking that into account, David, the reason why I'm giving it a 97% because I thought about that. Well, maybe I should slow down and wait to see what they're doing. But that wouldn't be fair. We're reviewing it based on the episode. And yeah. this episode is really good with what it's doing.
0: That's the thing is kind of like, I'm interested to see where they're, they're going to go with this episode. After this episode, dude, there were so many theories that popped in my head. They threw out daystrom Essential, essentially when you throw out daystrom. Okay. Then the question becomes what in the world could they have pulled out? And there's so many things. Data's body. You think data's
1: body? I don't know. I'm going to well, give I'm, me uh, one. We have to close out. We only have 30
0: seconds. I'm going to say it's the AI from discovery. Oh, no. Well,
1: who knows what it's going to be, David. It's a weapon, Mike. Because they did say, the changeling before he was killed by Worf, did say that they, along with other enemies Enemies. of the Federation, are uniting. Yes. So, we'll see.
0: I'm telling you, it's all AIs. It's all the
1: AIs. No, that's what Mike... that's why McMahon's doing uh, Mike it. Mike McMahon did that already in lower notes, no, no. or he He's is working hinted. on it. He's
0: hinting at it, Mike. Because oh I tell you, it's going to be uh, you all know the. What, David, whatever. You're, a, you seem to be peanut right. Butter oh, David, <laughs> to, <laughs> gonna, peanut butter hamper is going
1: to show up. Oh, David, shut your mouth. Because it seems to. Now that means it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Peanut butter hamper is going to be in Picard. Please, no. All right,
0: David, thank you. All right, thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain my pain it runs deep share it with me and simulation